King David ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders concerning Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the slaughter there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. He was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. Joab took three spears in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good tidings for my lord the king, for the Lord has vindicated you this day, delivering you from the power of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young men Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to do you harm be like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of the Lord. If you and I were going to write a screenplay where a movie about the life of David was being made, not Hollywood's way, but the Bible's way, we might begin that movie with that first statement of David to his commanders, understanding that a great battle is about to be waged in the forest of Ephraim. One army is called the army of Israel. But that's supposed to be David's army. David was the king. But the army of Israel this day is not fighting for David. They're fighting for David's son, Absalom. Only David's most loyal supporters are fighting for him. David wants to go into battle himself. As best we can tell, he's a man past 60 years of age by this time. And his commanders say, no, you're too valuable to go into battle You you wait here. And so David sits there between the outer and inner walls protecting the city in Ephraim and waits word of the battle. And as he sits and waits, so many images must have come into the mind of David. How did I ever get into this mess where my own son has deposed me? where my armies are going up against his armies in a battle that will determine the future of Israel. If David is reflecting, he might have gone back to a time when he was a shepherd boy at Bethlehem. There was a stir in that little town one day when the prophet Samuel arrived. Samuel had come looking for a new king for Judah. He had been against anointing a first king, but the people had demanded a king. So Samuel had followed God's own direction and said, they are insistent upon having a king, anoint a king for them. And the king he anointed was Saul, you recall. 
At first, Saul felt unworthy to be king and made a pretty good king. And then one day he decided he was a terrific king and became a very bad king. He did what kings were supposed to do, they thought, and that was to take and take and take some more from the people. So the Lord appeared to Samuel and said, we've made a big mistake. Saul is not the man. You have to go anoint a new king. And Samuel believed that God was directing him to go to Bethlehem. And Samuel said, if I just go to Bethlehem, Saul is going to be suspicious. What am I doing there? What is my mission and purpose? And God said, we'll take a young heifer along with you and say, I'm here to offer sacrifice. I want you to go to the house of Jesse and say, Jesse, I want you and your sons to go with me to sacrifice this animal as a thanksgiving to the Lord. And I'm going to help you know which son of David will be the next king of Judah. Samuel goes with this heifer, takes her down, leads her down to Bethlehem. The people are curious. Why is this prophet of the Lord in our little town? He says, I've come to offer sacrifice. Jesse, why don't you and your sons help me offer sacrifice? And when sacrifice has been offered, Samuel asked Jesse, introduce your sons to me. Then the oldest is introduced and Samuel thinks, wow, this is a good looking young man, big, tall, strong. This must be the one. But God is whispering in Samuel's heart, no, 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 not this one. And so the second is introduced, big, tall, strong. God says, not this one. Third one, fourth one, sixth, fifth, sixth, seventh son introduced to Samuel. Every time Samuel is hearing God saying, not this one. And so Samuel asked, have you no other sons? Well, I do have an eighth son. He's just a boy. He's out tending the goats right now. Call him. And when David came in, Samuel's heart was stirred within him. He knew this was the one. And he anointed the boy David to be king of Judah. But of course, he wasn't to tell Saul. No one else was to tell Saul. The time was not right yet. Only David and his family knew David will one day be the king of Judah. The next big story we have involving David is a story about a war between the Philistines and the armies of Judah. They had gathered on two hills with a valley in between, neither army willing to march down into the valley, giving the other army advantage by being at the top of the hill. Uh, arrows, spears, much more effective thrown from the top of the hill than thrown up from the valley. So the armies are camped there on the tops of the hills. But every morning, one of the Philistines comes out and screams across the valley, let one of you meet me in the valley. And the victor declares the victorious army and the victim declares the army that has been defeated. One day, the boy, David, has been sent by his father to bring new provisions for his brothers who are a part of that army. And David sees what's going on and says, I cannot believe that the people of God are standing here unwilling to go to battle in the Lord's name, that these uncircumcised Philistines are scaring all of you. Happy. I cannot believe this. Let me fight him. I will fight this giant of a man, Goliath. Finally, Saul, afraid himself to go and fight, his men afraid to go and fight, has all of his armor put on David, his spear handed to David, 
And David tries walking in all of this gear, says, this is not the way I'm accustomed to doing things. I cannot wear your armor, cannot fight with your spear. But I have defeated bears and lions who've threatened my father's animals. He picked up six smooth stones from the riverbed in the wadi, took a slingshot and went to meet Goliath. And just before Goliath got close enough to David to strike, David let fly the first stone. It hit Goliath in the middle of the forehead. He fell to the ground and David rushed over and cut off his head. It was a big day for Judah. David became a close friend with one of Saul's sons, Jonathan. Really close friends. But as David grew and became a fighter... Gaining more and more repute, it was now said of Saul, Saul has slain his thousands, David has slain his tens of thousands. And Saul decided this young man was a threat to him and must be done away. He tried to kill David, chasing him all the way down into the desert on the banks of the Dead Sea near Masada that stands there today. In that place at En Gedi, he tried once again to kill David. Twice David was close enough he could have killed the king. Twice he refused, but the king was trying to kill him. Eventually, David fled to the enemy. He joined forces with the Philistines. He even led a couple of battles for them. And then a big battle was coming along, another really big one against the armies of Judah. And the Philistines were afraid that David's heart might change him in the middle of the battle. They did not trust him, and they did not let him go into that battle. It was fought near Bethshean. When we first went to Israel in 1983, Bethshean was nothing but a grassy, trapezoidal shape down near the Jordan River Valley. The scholars of Israel believed these were the remains of Bethshean, so long ago destroyed in the dust had blown and collected over the ruins, and now it had that familiar trapezoidal shape that archaeologists and anthropologists know, and they decided to dig down into it. On each successive trip, we saw the ruins of Bethshean gradually being re-erected. The Romans had finally held the city before its destruction. They had brought in their beautiful marble and had paved the main street that they always called the Cardia, the heart of the city. And now those pavements have been erected again, the pillars raised at Bethshean. It was a disastrous battle for Saul and his army. In fact, Saul was killed. Three of his sons, including Jonathan, killed and their bodies nailed to the wall at Bethshean. Now David could become king. David was anointed king again of Judah, the southern tribes. There had been separation, the two southern tribes against the ten northern tribes. And David was told, if you will build a new capital city, not using the capital of Judah, not using the capital of Israel, the northern tribes, but a new capital city, perhaps you can reunite the tribes. And so he took a place called Mount Zion from the Jebusites and announced this new city would be called Jerusalem and that they would begin the building of that city right away. In fact, the northern tribes agreed to join the south and David was now king not only of Judah, but of all Israel, all 12 tribes. 
The Bible has a few skips in it at that point. We're not told a lot of the details. We know a little bit about his first wife and a little bit about the second wife. And then we start reading about lots of concubines. David is fathering children with this wife and that wife and concubines and so on. And as these children begin to grow, David has less and less interest in his family, more and more interested in being a great commander, a man of war, a man of blood, if you will. One year, he has sent his armies out to battle at a place called Amnon. Think of the new modern capital of Jordan today. It's across the Jordan River and in the territory of modern-day Jordan. They've laid siege to the city, and this siege is going on now, waiting for the people inside to run out of food and water so they will surrender. David has gone back to Jerusalem. He's bored to death one day, walking around the roof of the palace, When he looks down below and sees a beautiful young woman bathing, she just happens to be the wife of one of his military commanders named Uriah. Now, don't think Hollywood movie of this. Think what the Bible says about this. David goes down and takes the wife of Uriah. There is an afternoon tryst. There is sex. And then David goes back to his own business. There is no love affair. There is no love at all. This is a king who takes the way Samuel had told the people kings do. They take whatever they want. And David has taken one of his commander's wives while this commander is fighting for David at a horrible battle at Amnon. David goes back about his own business and then is told a few weeks later that this young woman is pregnant. Now he has a real problem on his hands. So he sends word to Joab, his commander over at Amnon, send Uriah home. Uh, Let him spend a few nights with his wife. When the baby's born, he will not figure out all this math. Everything will work out fine. The only problem is that when Uriah is brought back to Jerusalem, he refuses to spend the night with his wife until his soldiers can spend the night with their wives. David has a problem. So he decides, well, let's get him drunk. When people get drunk, their inhibitors go to sleep. Let's give him more than he can stand to drink. So they really get Uriah drunk and say, don't you want to go home and spend the night with your wife? But even in his drunken condition, he says, I will not go to my wife until those who fight for me get to go home to their wives. So David summons Joab and says to him, then this is the way we're going to deal with this. You march closer to the wall at Amnon than you've ever marched before. And when Uriah is the closest of all to the wall, suddenly order retreat, letting the enemy kill Uriah. It's murder, if you would. It's exactly what happens. Uriah is killed. The baby is born a few months later, and it dies. Not a good chapter in David's life. David's other children are getting bigger and bigger. One of them is a young man, Amnon, who suddenly decides that his half-sister Tamar is particularly attractive to him. Uh, This is not acceptable in Judaism for a half-brother to uh, be in love with, in a sexual way, a half-sister, Amnon doesn't seem to care about that, may not even know the Ten Commandments at this point. There's no indication that he's been a part of any religious instruction whatsoever. 
He cannot figure out a way to be alone with Tamar. So he decides he will pretend to be sick and that no one can help him get well except Tamar, that she makes the greatest soup in all of Judah. And if she will come and serve him, he will be well again. When Tamar comes and brings the food, Amnon rapes her. He rapes his half-sister, same father, different mother. But one who has the same father and the same mother is named Absalom. And he is not happy about what's happened to his sister. He appeals to the king. The king does nothing. So Absalom seethes for two years over this injustice. He is so out enraged that his father has done nothing to this half-brother of his who's wronged his sister. And so he decides to have a big party and invite Amnon to come. And in the middle of that party, he calls on his closest friends to kill Amnon, and he is murdered. David is not happy. He reacts this time, and Absalom flees. He has gone for three long years. And then Joab says to David, David, you need to bring him back. The people are talking. This is not a good thing for the king's son to be gone for three years. No communication whatsoever. Bring Absalom back. David says, well, if that's what needs to be done, do it. And Absalom is allowed to return to Jerusalem. But the Bible says there is no contact between the two. For two years. None. Are you adding these up? Two years, Absalom grieved. Then the murder. Now gone three years. Now back two years. Seven years. He's had no contact with his father whatsoever. None. And Joab says, this is not a good thing. You need to reconcile with this young man. You need to reconcile with him. And so David comes out of the palace and says to him, okay, I forgive you. Are we square now? I forgive you and turns and walks away. So Absalom begins to sit at the city gate day after day as people come to have their grievances addressed. Rather than letting them go on to the palace, Absalom says, you have indeed been wronged. Do you see that your king is doing nothing to address your grievances? Absolutely nothing. I can do something to help you. And he sits there four years helping the people, helping the people until he decides, now I want you to help me rid our nation of this evil man, David. And enough people follow Absalom that he is able to rout the king. This uh, aging father of his now with his army hurries out of the city of Jerusalem down this winding road all the way to the Jordan River. It's 17 miles away. Scholars say that if Absalom and his army had pursued David in the middle of the night, they probably could have killed him and the kingdom would have belonged to Absalom. But his younger advisors say to him, no, you have to show the whole country that, in fact, you are the king. And the way you do that, the way you do that is by cavorting all night with your father's concubines. If you sleep with the women with whom he slept, they will know for sure you are the new king. And so he spends the night with all of these women and David and his army have time to get across the Jordan and to regroup. That's where we pick up with the reading today. 
Absalom has arrived with his army and the battle is about to begin. And David calls in his three primary commanders and says, deal gently with the young man, Absalom, and sends him into battle. But Joab is a commander and he knows this king inside and out, backward and forward. And he knows enough on this king to hang him, particularly the Uriah incident. And so when he finds Absalom swinging from the branch of a tree where his helmet and this beautiful mass of hair has somehow gotten caught, he runs three darts into his heart. And those who are armor bearers for Joab join in, ten of them piercing this young man till they're sure he's truly dead. Two runners set out to tell David what has happened. One of them is the priest's son. He wants to be the first to tell. He is warned the king is not going to be happy about this news. I wouldn't be the one to give it to him. The Cushite runs fast. Uh, We know where Cush was. Cush was an ancient country in northern Africa, probably modern day Ethiopia, who produced really great marathon runners in our own time. And the Cushite runs very well. When he arrives, the king asks, how How did it go? How about the young man, Absalom? And he is told, may it be so with everyone who opposes you, O king. And he knows, David knows, the boy is dead. And so he grieves. Three times he cries out the name, O Absalom, O Absalom, O Absalom. And five times he says, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son. When it was time to be a father, he acted like a general. When it was time to be a general, he acted like a father. It's a tragic story. Tragic story. Let me mention two things. First of all, all families have difficulties. All families are dysfunctional, just some more than others. There are are problems in every family. How we deal with those problems of husband and wife, of mother, father, of child and parent and grandparent and aunt and uncle and cousin and all these entanglements that we have because of family. Blake Morrison is a poet and novelist in England, and he has written a book called When Did You Last See Your Father? It's a memoir about his relationship to his own father. Blake Marson's father is dying. Have you ever noticed how many plays have been written, how many movies made about daughters who have to go home to help a dying mother, sons who have to go home to help a dying father? These stories come again and again because that's the way life is. Serious illness and death have a way of bringing families into focus, either in all their dysfunctionality or with some hope, hope and promise that things can be made better. Blake Morrison in his memoir says that coming to take care of his dying father just refocuses the differences between them. Blake Morrison's a writer. As a writer, he tends to be more introspective. He tends to be more self-conscious. The father is type A personality, aggressive, loud, boisterous. 
Blake writes about a time when he was a little boy riding in the back seat of the car and his father cut off a whole string of drivers just because he thought he ought to get to go before anybody else. And how Blake crawled down into the back seat of the car because it embarrassed him. He was humiliated by it. Years later, when Blake was being honored at a dinner for being an outstanding writer, his father managed to steal the show, telling one story after another, getting louder and louder, drawing more and more attention to himself and not to Blake. And so Blake wrote the story. When was the last time you saw your father? Really saw him. Took a good look at him. At you, your mother. At her. At you. At family. How long? So much of the hurt and pain here could have been done away had David only remembered what he knew so well as a boy. We are the people of God. We're supposed to act like people of God. We're supposed to be different from all the others. We have a Ten Commandments. Uh, we have multiplications of those commandments that help us know what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. And when we violate one of those, there are consequences for sure. Choosing the one who will lead you is the all-important thing, one whose guidance and direction you need. This story. We've been in Alaska, as you know. Gail and I had never been there before. And so I became fascinated with all these stories again of the dogs. These marvelous animals that run so magnificently through the cold and ice. Gee, when we pulled in the parking lot at Tulsa uh, that Monday after, after the last Sunday in July, our car said it was 102 degrees here. Uh, we flew into Fairbanks and uh, it, was, it was 40, 48 degrees that night and raining. It rained on us most of the next two weeks. And we had opportunity in those 45 to 55 degree days and nights to hear these stories told again. I was fascinated with the story of Susan Butcher. I remember her, but here were new details about Susan's life, new to me. Uh, Susan in high school decided that she didn't want to live in big cities in the lower 48. She really wanted to be a part of this magnificent land of Alaska. When she was graduated from school, she moved to a cabin 50 miles from her nearest neighbor, 150 miles from the nearest road, she took some little puppies with her and she survived for three years and decided that her little puppies, now grown up, were ready to run. Susan Butcher entered the Iditarod 18 times and won four times against the 100 best mushers in the world. They come from Norway and Finland and Sweden and Denmark, as well as all across Canada and Alaska to race. Every year they commemorate that event that occurred more than 100 years ago. And there was an outbreak of diphtheria up in Nome, and they needed to get vaccine to Nome as quickly as possible. The only way to get to Nome from Anchorage in those days was by sled dog, to get there quickly. It's 1,150 miles, and they made the run in a little more than 10 days and nights. These little dogs are not as big as I thought they would be. They weigh about 50 to 60 pounds. 
they are not purebred. Now, one of the women racers we saw said, oh, my mutts, she said, can outrun a purebred any day. We've bred these dogs and crossbred these dogs. They're not very big. They weigh 50 to 60 pounds. They live to run. When I walk out into the kennel, she said, in the morning, they all rear up on their hind legs saying, take me, take me. And if they don't get to run four or five hours a day, they're disappointed and frustrated. They love to run 1,150 miles. But Susan Butcher would become a wife, mother of two, and then after her 50th birthday was diagnosed with leukemia. At 51, she died. She spent the last few months of her life writing a story called Granite. It's the story of her lead dog. She said, Granite was so good that I could actually sleep holding on to the sled. We would go so many hours into the night and it would be so cold that I would find that I had dozed off. Granite was still on the trail. We met another, Jesse Royer. Jesse is trying to follow in the footsteps of Susan Butcher. She would love to be one of those women who's won the race. But in Juneau, for an hour, I got to hear the woman who was the first woman ever to win. One of the men had said, if a woman ever beats me, I'll eat my fur hat. And she beat him for sure back in 1982. And she beat him by going out onto a frozen lake past midnight one night when all the men had decided it was too dangerous to go. It was 50 below zero. And she moved her dogs out onto that icy lake, a part of the 1,150 miles. It had already been going day and night, day and night. And she decided she had a chance to get ahead of all these men if she dared go out in the middle of the night, 50 below zero. And she set her dogs across the lake. She'd gone three hours, could not see a thing. The wind was blowing so hard, stirring up the snow. She was afraid to go any farther. If they veered off course just a few degrees, they could be miles from where they ought to be when they got to the far side of the lake. She decided to stop for the night in the middle of the lake. She said she hunkered down in her sleeping bag. She said the dogs are fine. They've been doing this for thousands of years, she said. They know how to curl up just right. They even know how to wrap their tail around their noses so that they're breathing warmed air that comes past their own tail wrapped close to the nose. And as snow falls on them, it actually insulates them against the cold. She said, after three hours, I decided we must go on. We must go on. And I decided to hitch one of my females to the lead. She was not my biggest dog, not my strongest dog, not my fastest dog, but I knew that she had an inordinate sense of direction. I hitched her to the lead and we started across the lake. The wind was still blowing so hard I could not see where we were going. I couldn't see the markers. This little female of mine, she said, kept pulling to the right, pulling to the right. And I was trying so hard to steer to the left. I was screaming as loudly as I could. Left. I was telling the dogs left. And she was pulling us to the right. And as the first rays of daylight came, I could see we were flying right past the markers, one after the other, right beside the markers. You want to know the secret to winning, she said. Pick your lead dog 
very 